Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey where we talk with people from all across the globe, from all walks of life, and how they're trying to find their trifecta of happiness, as I call it, doing what they love, what they can be great at, and where they can make the greatest impact on the world that they want to make. And this episode is no different. I welcome in Hannah Mason to the podcast, and she is a vitality coach and author of several books, and really is about helping people not just heal, but thrive. And that's through a lot of great coaching and helping them realize you know, how they project themselves, how they manage their thoughts, how they're able to overcome a lot of the negativity that is surrounding them and ultimately get to a better place in life. I'm really excited for y'all to listen on this episode. I absolutely enjoyed my conversation with Hannah, and I hope you all do too. Without further ado, let's jump into my chat today with Hannah Mason. Let's get it started. Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Nice to have you. It's a pleasure being here. Well, I know we've been trying to set this up for a while. I'm, I'm excited. One, because you're, I think, the furthest guest I've ever had away. Can you share with everyone where you're recording this from? So I'm recording from Jerusalem, Israel. Once upon a time, I lived in Australia. Had I been there, then you would have like really gotten the furthest <laughs> away thing. That would have been great. Um, I'm in Jerusalem, Israel. I've been here for almost 20 years. And, and it I'm originally like, from. Hmm? Well, it looks like you've traveled. And that was one of the things I want to talk through, um, kind of get into is you've been all over the world, it looks like, and you kind of made your trek. I think you're from, you're born in Colombia. Is that right? Yes. So, well, I want to talk about that journey a little bit. Can you can you start off here? Because I think it's important for everyone to know, and you know what we talk a lot about here on the Just Get Started podcast around your purpose and mission, and and when do you find that, and you know, are you still searching for it? So, can you share with everyone what what is your purpose and mission in life that you've uncovered? So, I I have this very strong belief, and I don't know if it's universally true, but uh, it feels very true to me that part of how we find our mission in life is to work on healing the pain points in our own lives. And then there's something incredibly redemptive about being able to do that for other people also. That, that if my suffering has, has enabled me to help someone else in that same point of suffering, then it wasn't suffering. For some reason, that's sort of the story that I live by. Um, and, and that's how I found my, my purpose in life. And I love being around people. I love teaching and sharing and to be able to help someone understand a lesson and have an aha moment that I once upon a time had that really created a transformation in my life. That's like, whoa, that's amazing. Well, and that's what I want to talk to you a little more because, because I share that same sentiment of kind of, yeah, how do you help people overcome stuff that maybe you went through? And I always look at it from, you know, I look at like the younger generation and I have, a, I have an eight-year-old son and, you know, I kind of look as, as, as he grows, it's like, do I want him to make the same mistakes that I did? Now, partly I do from a standpoint of, I think you learn right from those experiences, but then partly it's like, if I can make him avoid some of those that are just, you know, ridiculous, uh, maybe that could help him get further on his path. I don't know. That's how I look at it at least. And I'm, I'm assuming there's some, some synergy there with how you look at it. As yeah. Well. Yeah. It's like we, we have this on the one hand, this, this desire not to save our son from hardship. Um, but but at the same time, not um, not hold back the opportunity for him to access wisdom. So I think that's kind of the difference. I feel like so much of American culture is about making sure that kids are totally protected from having to go through hardship. 
Like that's not really our perspective. Our perspective is let's throw this kid into as many challenging situations as he can get into. And at the same time, equip him with tools and wisdom and the street smarts to, to manage. So a perfect example of that is um, my husband came up with this concept he calls probation. So uh, it's kind of turned on and off over the course of, of our lifetime with our son who's 15. Um, but there've been long periods of time where if he engaged in a behavior that was inappropriate, so my husband would give him probation, which is that in order for him to be able to access a device or be able to do something that he was doing before, it's kind of like being grounded, except it's not just being grounded. He has to earn it back. And he earns it back by reading a personal growth book. So he read Seven Habits that way. And he read Man's Search for Meaning. And I'm trying to remember what other books, like a whole bunch of personal growth books. Um, and then he had to write something on the lessons that he learned from the book. So that it wasn't just like, oh, he made a mistake and we're just going to punish him for it. It was like, oh, we're going to give him an opportunity to grow through it. That was really smart. That was my husband's idea. Had nothing to do with it. Really brilliant. And now he's read all these incredible books that have planted seeds in him that he's not necessarily yet ready to apply, but they're there. Yeah. Well, you know, I've also found too, I'm curious if you guys did this as well. It's around... um, We've already went off tangent here a little bit, but whatever. Um, so, but it's really around, I guess, a growth and development is trying to things that I may not have done, or even things that I might not think I like, trying to expose him to them. And not the whole like, oh, if I, if I like this, I want him to do everything I like, but actually stepping outside my comfort zone even more and saying, you know what, I may not know much about like, like an example, I was looking up some stuff for jujitsu. Right, to get him involved in some stuff like that. And I've never done that in my life. I hear people have done it. It seems pretty cool. But I'm like, you know, maybe that's something. Let, let's have him try and see if that engages him or gets him thinking different. You know, So I think that's another thing is, is being able to put our kids in situations that um, we may not be comfortable with as well. But we have to know that, hey, it's a, a chance for them to learn. And they may like it. You know. So for me, when you asked about traveling a lot and being in lots of different places in the world. Um, that has definitely been one of those pieces for us. For reasons that I have a difficult time tangibly, tangibly explaining, when you take a kid, but also an adult, let's be honest, we're still kids, right? And you put yourself into a culture different from your own. You now see your own culture from an outsider's perspective, and it gives you like insights but you're now exposing yourself to a whole different way of looking at life. Everything from the words that people use to the pace of movement that they have. Um, the last big trip we made as a family was last winter, we were in Ecuador. And actually originally last night we were supposed to travel to Colombia, but that got canceled. So we get to do this instead, it's great. So, um, um, so we went to Ecuador for five weeks and my son was practicing his Spanish. And simultaneously, we were watching um, a culture very different from Israeli culture. Israeli culture in general is like constantly looking for forward movement, solving problems, seeking opportunities. Um, And it felt more like Ecuadorian culture in general is just like, this is how life is. We just accept it. We speak at this pace. We can sit on a bus quietly for hours. It's just like a totally different, and it's not necessarily one is right or one is wrong, but it's so fascinating to distance yourself from what you're used to because it forces you to question your thinking. 
and to question all of the presuppositions that, that run your life, which is what I do for a living with people all the time. When they're so attached to their minds that it causes them so much suffering and pain. Well, so let me ask you on that. How, when did you question your thinking? Like you didn't, I have to imagine you didn't always believe your, your mission, your whole life. So when did that change for you? Um, so I'll be honest. So when I was five years old, we left Columbia because five men came into our house with guns. They had a gun to my mother's head for a couple of hours. And um, they eventually threatened to kidnap my sisters and me. My mother convinced them somehow, she's just very brilliant and charming. Somehow she convinced them to leave and to come back the next day and she would figure out how to get money for them. In the meantime, she'd gotten us to another family's house and um, within a day or two, we fled the country. And I got to take one thing with me, I got to take my bear. And I came to the United States. And so, you know, I'm, I'm 42. And in America already 40 years ago, a kid goes through something like that and people talk therapy, right? They're like, oh, why don't you, you know, maybe the kid has some trauma, why don't we do some therapy, right? So Columbia 40 years ago, is you know, culturally very behind on things like that, on progressive ideas like therapy. So no, at no point did it occur to anyone to recommend that my family seek therapy and we were all traumatized. So as a kid, I just had to come up with my own story about what had happened and it matched the story that I saw on TV, which is that there's these bad men who are coming after me. And when bad men come after people in the movies, they'll travel across countries They'll search, you know, for these people somehow and they'll find me. And so I spent years like petrified that the bad men were kind of kind of come and get me. And I had nightmares every single night until I was about 12. And the, the biggest thing that was scary for me was I felt like I couldn't trust my own mind. I didn't have any control over my own mind because as soon as I try to fly, I couldn't, my feet were glued to the ground. I'd try to think of a Care Bears. You remember Care Bears? I loved Care Bears. Try to think of Care Bears and the witch would come and eat the Care Bears. It was, I just had no sense of control or mastery over my own mind. And that really ate at me until eventually very young, I got depression. Like when I was a preteen, I got depression. And, um, and I went in and out of therapy for years and every therapeutic experience I had was not therapeutic in a nutshell. There was just something about the way therapy functioned that didn't work for me. And I kept feeling like, almost like I was too smart for it. And what I realize now is that the therapeutic model that the people that I'd been seeing were functioning under was actually the exact same model that my brain was functioning under. So my brain was constantly trying to like, label and judge the entire world and was so attached to, to my thoughts. And the, and the psychologists were doing the same thing, but they were doing it to me. They were trying to like label me and judge me and put me in a box and diagnose me. And it's the same level of consciousness. And it wasn't until I started meeting people who understood a higher level of consciousness, which is that consciousness creates reality, that what you think what you believe is what you see. That what you believe creates your worldview, that helped me to kind of like rise above and go into an observer consciousness. And it was like, oh, that was so eye-opening. And it's a process I think for most human beings, you know, who aren't Eckhart Tolle and Byron Katie, like those 
magical people who've been kind of like sprinkled with fairy dust and managed to rise above it really quickly. For most of us, it's, it's an evolutionary process where we go out of being stuck in just physicality and just labels and just, um, you know, deeply attached to our beliefs to the point that we're willing to wage war over them, which I think is very much what's happening in America right now. It's just like everyone's so attached to their identity and their position. And it's just like war. And to be able to rise above it and just to see that we can live the life that's created by our, our mindset. And then there's another level even above that, which is the level of no thought at all. It's the level of really understanding that absolutely everything is one. I've had moments where I've touched that, but I don't, I don't live there. I, I live in the middle, middle one mostly. Um, so that, yeah, that's kind of my, my journey. Well, and so when you discovered that and how old were you when you think you kind of first discovered that? Um, I got my first taste of it in my mid twenties, but I wasn't ready, but I got a taste of it. I wasn't ready. And then in my thirties, it, it started to like late twenties, early thirties. And where it really set in was when um, a girlfriend of mine who was my neighbor picked up a book of Byron Katie's called Loving What Is. And, you know, we're all like self-help, you know, personal growth junkies. And she, she hands me this book. She's like, I found it. This is it. And I read it and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is it. And I go into another girlfriend and I gave it to her. And, and that hat that went around my neighborhood. And 10 of us decided to get together and we met once a week. And if people get one message from this entire conversation, it's this. If you can create this in your life, it's like worth millions of dollars of value. Um, and we got together once a week for a couple hours uh, on a morning. We're all these young moms. And we practiced the principles that Byron Katie teaches in her tool, The Work. And we added to it and we dissected it and talked about it and processed it and facilitated each other. And what was, what's so cool about being in a group of people, you, you have this belief, like, let's say you believe I'm a loser. You know, you don't want to tell anybody that you believe you're a loser. You think it's this like secret thought that you don't want to share with anyone. turns out everybody's got this belief. And when you're sitting with a group of girlfriends and, you know, one, one of my girlfriends came in with, you know, talking about her alcoholic mother. And then we were all like, oh yeah, it's just a thought. Another one came in and was like, oh, such and such about my husband. And we we're like, oh, we've all had that thought. And then you get to the point where you just realize like, they're just thoughts. They're not a big deal. They give you an opportunity to learn and to grow if you're willing to just sit in the quiet and question them. And that totally changed my life. Well, and that's maybe a good sidestep for a second around support systems. I always like to talk about support systems on, on this podcast because I think, you know, I look at my life and how, it, how it's been important um, or and, and how it's and, and both the positive and negative um, if you don't have a good support system. But that group might be one example. But is there any anything else, anyone you can share um, that throughout your life has been that support system for you to go to, to, to lean on? Maybe it's mentors, maybe it you know, it could be family, but I always like to say, even folks are away from family that you've met and have been impactful for your life. So I definitely had, you know, two, three healer healers in my life who were big teachers for me. Um, and there's one girlfriend from this group who she and I saw like, wow, we have a lot of work to do on ourselves. And we decided every single morning, 730 in the morning, we were going to go for a walk. 
So we got to watch nature unfold through the passing of the seasons as we walked for an hour each morning. And one morning I facilitated her and then the next morning she'd facilitate me. And through that process, I just gained so many insights and so many downloads on how to, how to help people unravel themselves out of their thinking. And now it's just become second nature. Um, so that I think between that group and that walking process of just committing myself to like, I'm going to work on this every single day. I was huge. You know, because a lot of folks, obviously, they'll, they'll help, they'll try to give advice, whatever, but you actually decided, like, I'm going to make that my life's work. I'm going to coach people. I'm going to try to help them. How Was that a confidence thing that you had to grow over time to be able to get into that? Because you didn't start that way. What, what do you think it was to take that step and say, all right, I feel that I could help these people um, that are struggling? That's a really good question. So there's a combination of two things. One is I've been mothering people my entire life. So there's just a part of my nature that just absolutely loves to nurture and care and support other people. Another piece is that my husband and I, from the day we got married, took it upon ourselves to be a family for people who don't have family. So there we, we live in like the hippest, most happening neighborhood in Jerusalem. It's kind of like a Greenwich Village kind of place. And there are tons of students here. And there are a lot of um, foreigners who come here by themselves and don't have family. So we've just made it a thing that we adopt them as family. And when people are in that stage of life, you know, when they're in their 20s and early 30s and they're trying to figure out who they are and where they're moving forward, they look for mentorship. And that's something that we love to do. So the opportunities just came and I naturally just started mentoring people. And eventually I just decided to put up a shingle and like do it formally. But for a long time, I was doing it informally and it still happens informally. It's just part of who I am as a human being. And I was really intimidated to put up a shingle at the beginning, like really scared. I was like, who am I? You know, cause I'd look at my mentors who have 20 years, my, you know, my elders and I was just in awe of them and they knew so much and I don't know anything. And I realized the only way I know, I get this now that the only way you can ever get there is by, by willing to kind of fumble all over yourself for a while until you do get there. No, no amount of pieces of paper or degrees or diplomas or certifications will ever get you what experience will get you. Well, so my question on that is, so I think a lot of people may know that thought or feel that thought, but they don't actually take the action. So how did you overcome that fear initially to say, you know what, I'm going to take this leap, even though it's, it's scary. Yeah. That's a really good question. Um, so at the beginning, when I opened up my coaching practice, I offered a whole bunch of free sessions, which gave me a lot of opportunities to practice in a way that didn't feel like I was charging people. So I didn't, you know, there's less strings attached. It felt like, um, the other thing is my husband has held a philosophy that he, he only put words to last week. So it's good. We're meeting now. He only put words to this last week. We were sitting with friends for lunch last Saturday. And, and the, the guy who was at the table was talking about how there's this thing he's been wanting to do. He's been wanting to make videos of himself teaching what he teaches, but he's just intimidated in the technology and this and that and the other. And Dave got that if this guy doesn't just do it, he's never going to get over the hurdle of it being hard. And so he said to him, and it was like one of those where the, once the words came, it was like brilliant. He said, you've got to hurry up and fail. And that's actually become like the hashtag of the e-course that we're running right now. We're, we're teaching a course based on our book, The Size of Your Dreams. That's all about 
goal setting and, and self-identity and having a vision for your life and manifesting your dreams. And um, this has become like the hashtag for the course, hurry up and fail. And we've actually encouraged people in the Facebook group to fail at least three times this week and to post their failures for everyone to cheer them on on, oh, that's so great that you failed, you know? And, it, that, and that's that whole mindset of seeing failure as a success shifts everything because our education teaches us that failure means there's something wrong with you as opposed to it means that there's something right with you because you're trying and you're learning and you're moving forward. Yeah. I mean, that kind of takes me back to the, the, actually this podcast, you know, I was going to, I talked about this a lot. I was going to start this for two years and had this, a lot of the fear and anxiety and, you know, just the, the whole thing, like, what are people going to say? Are they going to be like, you know, and people still said stuff after I started, um, but it's kind of blocking out that noise. And I, and I think for me, a lot of it was almost visualizing what if I didn't like, so if I, like, I, I think back a lot, like, what if I didn't start two and a half years ago, where would I be? What would I have done? You know, what I, I think of all the relationships I've built that have been really solid. You talk about those support systems and stuff because of this podcast. Wow. And it's, it's really interesting. Of it. So I kind of visualized that early on. And that's ultimately one of the things that got me over the hump was like, hey, there's an opportunity here to craft a new life. And who knows what it's going to become. But gosh, this is something you want to do. So why, you know, why not? Why not do it? And I, and, and keep telling my, that myself that uh, enough, it, uh, it got me over the edge. One of the other things I think is helpful, and this may be for, for the listeners as well, is I, I kind of made it almost a story of one, as I call it. Like, so my whole um, vision was I was looking at my son and saying, it would be really cool as he gets older to see the documentation that I actually interviewed cool people like yourself. And I had these conversations wow. and I learned and I put myself out there and I tried and tasted and it could be stuff that he learned. So I kind of use that as my single focus of like talking to one person. And if I'm talking to him, if I, if I'm thinking questions to ask people, well, maybe because I think he might want to ask that or want to learn down the road to help, help him mm. on his life. So that could be another thing to help people is like, take out of, I got to please everyone. I got to do whatever. It's like, is there, is there one thing you could help others with? Is there one person? And maybe that could be the thing that takes that leap, you know? I don't know. That's how I looked at it, at least. There's this other distinction that I've come to recently that's huge for me and in my ability to communicate with clients. And that is that I've noticed a pattern that when, when people say, oh, I, you know, I don't have self-esteem and they'll say, oh, like, oh, I couldn't do that because um, it's too hard. They'll say things like that, right? So it's like if you were saying for your podcast, let's say like, oh, I, I couldn't do that. What you're basically saying is, my ego is so big that it can't handle doing something not well. It looks like low self-esteem, but it's actually arrogance, right? And the, the person who taught me this the most is actually um, a woman who's now in her 80s who lives in Jerusalem. She's one of the biggest Torah, female Torah scholars in the world. And I was on a women's retreat that she also attended, that she was one of the educators on this retreat. And here's this woman of like such stature, not to mention her age also carries a certain amount of stature. She was in her mid seventies at the time. So she has all of the stature. She has all this scholarship around her. She's very highly revered. And Saturday night, one of the women in the group is a Zumba teacher. So she puts on Zumba music. And this woman, this older woman decides to join the Zumba class. And I'm gonna be blunt, she has two left feet. She was tripping all over herself and like, 
really very not coordinated. And there were, there were some other women in the group who were watching this great Torah scholar who should be, you know, have so much stature and all this stuff. They were watching her and they were in awe. They were in absolute awe at how incredibly humble she was and how comfortable she was not being good at something. And then they decided they wanted her to be their teacher. And we think it's the opposite. We think like people are only going to like us if we have it all together, if we're perfect, if we do it just right. And it's like, no, people are going to connect to us if we're willing to have the humility to fumble all over ourselves and to just try. It's such like a different perspective. Yeah, it is. It is really interesting. You know, I've been talking to a lot of folks recently about podcasting, you know, as an example. And I think a lot of folks want to say, well, I'm not an expert. I don't know that subject. And, and my kind of coaching to them is, well, that's actually, I think would be cool to listen to like someone that's actually trying to learn during the discovery process of putting the podcast mm. together. So you may not know anything about a topic, go learn about it, go seek out those people that know it. And I, and I think that, I think that that's a really great thought because do you think that's why people are so concerned? And I, when I say people, I'm probably talking in the mirror to myself too, at times, why, why you're so concerned with what others think of them? Is, is that part of it? Because obviously if not from a self-esteem, but that ego of like, I got to be this, this stature um, in people's eyes. I've got to be the big thing. Yes. In my eyes and other people's eyes. Um, so there's this thing that Byron Katie talks about. She has this concept called business. She says there's three different types of business. There's your business, other people's business, and God's business. If you don't like the word God, say the universe, nature, whatever you want, it doesn't matter. Okay. So, so your business are the things over which you have control and only the things over which you have control. Other people's business are, are obviously the things over they have control. So for example, if it rains today, that would fall under God's business or, re, you know, she, she equates God with reality, which actually works really well with the Jewish definition of God, because the Jewish name for God literally means reality. So, so, so there you are, right? So reality decides it's going to rain and that's reality's business, right? You're not going to turn, you're not going to turn the clouds on and get them like it's not their shower, right? So whose business is it if I put on a coat? Yours? Yeah. Okay. And whose business is it if you put on a coat? Mine. Exactly. It's that simple, right? Whose business is it if I like you? Yours? Right. When you live in the place of trying to appease other people, by definition, you have to leave your business. And physiologically, what that does for you is it means you literally have to energetically leave yourself. So I can show you really quickly what that looks like. You want to see? Yeah, let's, yes. Right. So take, take, your, take your hand, whatever is like your primary dominant hand, okay. and put it on your chest. Okay. Okay. And close your eyes for a minute. Okay. And you'll notice that you have like all of these different parts of your mind, right? There's a part that's like thinking about yesterday and tomorrow and what's going on with your son and what you're having for dinner. So I want you to invite all of your energy, your vitality, your mental focus back under your palm, like birds gathering together around a tree at the end of the day. Hold on, I'm gonna change, I'm gonna change the view here so if people are watching on video, they can see this. There we go, all right. Okay, so 
all, you know, all of this energy, all of this mental focus that you often have scattered in different places, just bring it all home under your palm, like trees gathering at the end of the day at sunset, sorry, birds gathering around the tree at the end of the day. And there's going to be a point at which you can feel like, oh, okay, I'm here. And tell me when you, when you got there. I feel there. Okay. So we're just going to pretend. Um, and I want you to um, believe for a moment the thought, Hannah doesn't like me. Okay. And I want you to notice when you're believing that, what happens to that energy that was under your hand? Yeah, there was kind of like a like a weird pulse, kind of like almost like my heart rate kind of changed a little bit, and I don't know, I don't know how to f explain it, but so your heart rate went up. Yeah, it's kind of like a little shock almost. Mm-hmm. And that energy that was under your hand scattered. Scattered. That's you leaving your business. The way you get back in your business, you ever feel yourself like your body feels tense or tight or closed or negative or anything like that? By definition, that means you've left your business. And the way you get back into your business is you just put your hand there. You just breathe, bring yourself back home, you're good. And then all you have to do is believe a thought that is false and it'll take you right out of your business again, yeah. right? You're going into, and you literally get scattered because you're like going over to me being like, ooh, how do I manipulate what she's thinking? Okay, how do I make her think differently? Da -da 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 -da. And when we do that, right, that's why your heart rate went up. Your heart rate went up because you immediately went into an adrenal response. And what lie detector tests do is they measure your adrenal response. They're measuring if you go into stress. If you go into stress, that means you're lying. If you're calm and open, it means you're telling the truth. So the reason that I know that thought isn't true is not because I like you. The reason I know that thought isn't true is because of what it did to your heart rate. Right. Just like that. Your body tightens, your heart rate goes up, your digestion shuts down, your chest closes in, you feel a negative emotion, you're believing something that's not true. And so exploring that emotion and uh, that thought and being willing to question it, turn it around and, and look at different ways of seeing, that's how you free yourself and bring yourself back into the present. And just doing that, if I put my thought right here and I'm willing to look at it and question it, I'm already distancing myself from it. And I immediately go into observer consciousness, which brings me more into the present. Yeah. Yeah. It, it kind of reminded me a little bit, just, just doing that for a minute or two is like, you know, I, and I don't do it as much right now. You know, I kind of go into these spurts around meditation, just like how it brings your kind of thoughts all together. And, and you don't get, cause that, that's what I feel is like when I, when I meditated all the scattered thoughts that I had, I started to at least get one central focus for that period of time. And, and, I, and it calmed me, if you will. Um, so I, I probably should do that more, but I, I kind of come in spurts on it. So do, do you meditate at all? Do you do anything like that? Or what what so other practices do you do that, that help you calm? I used, I used to be petrified of meditation. Like the idea of just like sitting in the quiet was like, oh my gosh, you know, because I have to be productive. And I went to a meditation retreat about a year and a half ago. It was long. It's like nine days or something. I don't remember how long it was. And that changed my life. That was like, okay, meditation is now a part of my life. So I have a half an hour practice that I do every morning. Um, and 
I, it's integral to me. And I notice that it's done something to my consciousness that I can't exactly put my finger on. And at the same time, the process, the meditative process of questioning thinking, um, I find more powerful. It's like they're, they're both good and they both have their purpose, but there's some like really tangible thing that I can say, oh, if I question my thinking that, that shifts my entire mindset entirely. What do you do in a meditation retreat? Just give me a little insight there. Cause I've, I've heard of some Tim Ferriss. I listen to a lot talks about meditation, retreat. but like, what's the, what's the gist of it? Cause it might, it sounds kind of cool. So I can only speak for the one that I went to. Um, we woke up at like five in the morning, something like that. And there were very strict rules about keeping the meditation space almost like a sacred space. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't wear shoes in the space and you couldn't make noise in the space. And each person had their seat and like, that's your seat for the rest of the time. I don't even know if they said that, but that was just kind of like, but classrooms, the same thing happens. Like you just keep taking the same seat again. Right. I don't know. Um, and we'd have like an hour and a half sit in the morning. And then there was like a, a time for prayer for those who wanted to pray. Otherwise they could sit for longer. And there were times for yoga twice a day. Uh, one of the teachers would teach a class and that was an opportunity for people to ask questions. But other than that, we were totally silent. We were encouraged not to read, not to journal, not to engage in eye contact. Because so all of those things like keep you, keep you in like language and mind. Um, and we also had throughout the day at different points, um, moving meditation. So we'd walk on the grass slowly and just feel our body moving. When we ate, that was an opportunity for meditation to like look at the food and observe the food. One of the things I notice happens is um, oftentimes when I'm dealing with clients who are unhappy, they'll believe something like, nothing's working right now. And I'll say, do you have food to eat? And they say, yeah, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm like, do you have clothing? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah that's not what I mean. You have a place to sleep? Yeah, 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 but that's not what I mean. That, that we do this thing that we um, make the little things that aren't working, we make them really big. And the really important things that are working, we make them really small. And so for me, that meditative practice is slowing down to the point that I can really relish the piece of lettuce. And I make the lettuce really big. And it doesn't leave much space for the thing that I'm worrying about. And that can get smaller. There's something really beautiful about there's so much richness in life, but we have a tendency to take that richness and make it insignificant because we're so busy searching for uh, control. And well, those are things over which we have the illusion we already have control. So now it's like, I need to go focus on this stuff, but that's not where the joy happens. I don't think. Yeah, it's really, it, it, it kind of reminds me it's, it's slightly off of it, but I, I think it's close as um, I had a, a great guy by the name of Neil Pastrich on the podcast, but I, I saw him speak a while back and something he said, I actually, I say to my son all the time when he starts getting like, you know, dad, I want my iPad or something like that. It's, and, and the quote is never forget how, how good you are. Never forget. I always, I always mess it up. Never forget how lucky you are. Never forget how good you have it. And that's something like his parents used to say to him growing up. And I, and I always say that to, to my son. Cause I'm like, yeah, you, you, you're kind of complaining about stuff. That's just, 
ridiculous when you don't realize the 50 things that are so good right now, why are you focusing on the one bad, you know? And I, I don't know, we do, I don't know why we do that. And I think, you know, I found at least from, you know, kind of, again, living in America and you're kind of in this rat race, everyone wants to be the best, you know, at, at whatever. It's always like, I'm, I'm looking at other people. And this is something that's, I, I felt that I've gotten a lot better at over the few years. I think that's why maybe I'm in a different position now than I, than I was is not worrying so much about the person next to me and where they are in the track. It's this comparison thing, I think, that happens with humans. It's like, well, they're there. I don't know why I'm not there. And then you start getting down in yourself. You ever hear that a lot from folks? Like, even though they're on, they're on such a different chapter in their life, they, they could have started a different time or they had some different opportunities that they went. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's no reason that comparison is the thief of joy is one of the, you know, my fun quotes I love. Oh, that's beautiful. I like that. I've never heard that before. Yeah, so because it I, is. I, I, mean, I think at the center of it is... And this is another one of those, remember when I said, oh, the person who has self low, says they have low self-esteem, it's really arrogance. So this is, this is another kind of like opposite, which is that when I'm busy comparing myself to other people, so I spend my time in their business, which is a very comfortable place to be, because in that place, I don't have to do anything. It's easy. It's really, really easy to spend my time judging other people. It's really easy to spend my time judging the system. The system has to change and other people have to change and I don't have to do anything. And so there's, there's always like this like balance, right? Because sometimes in systems, there are challenges and sometimes in the people around us, there are challenges, but more often than not, the biggest challenges we experience in our lives are inside, which is how, you know, I've, I've read a bunch of stories of people who um, came out of the Holocaust and, you know, they had, they had to go into these like DP camps that were, you know, they, they were out of the concentration camps, but they were now in refugee camps, which were full of disease. And these people are emaciated and they've lost their families and they're dealing with like the most horrific, challenging, traumatizing things you could possibly ever fathom. And they have fleas and lice on top of it. Like, it's just disgusting, right? And you know what they're worried about? what that girl thinks over there. And I like this boy, but he doesn't like me back. And the same stuff, right? It's the same stuff that we're dealing with that actually our biggest life challenges are very intimate. It's, um, I got, you know, I got plastered last night and now I have a hangover and I, and I hate myself for not having self-control. Those are the things that really like, really irk our lives on a daily basis. They don't tend to be systemic and they don't tend to be about other people. They're much more about who we are as human beings, but like, oh, I don't want to have to do all that work. I don't want to have to change myself. That's hard work. I'd rather think about trying to change someone else because that's really easy. Yeah. But then well, I'm totally powerless there. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this the other day and I, and I kind of, I've tried to put it in a phrasing. I don't know if it, it works or not, but it's like, I think most, and I look at this from, again, my own lens um, when I was younger, but you, most people would rather be semi-happy and comfortable versus being uncomfortable for just a period of time. It may not be for a long time in order to be extremely happy and fulfilled in life. But that small period of uncomfortableness, if that's even a word, um, it scares people. It scares the hell out of me, yeah. you know, and, and it did a lot more um, in the past. But I think it's because of some of those things that you just mentioned. It's like, we get in our own way, you know? 
I was just listening to Hal, what's his last name? I blanked out. He, he wrote the, um, like something like the million dollar morning, something like that. And he says that the, there's, it, it's kind of, if you, if you look at there being 30 days into shifting into a whole new habit, the first 10 days suck. They're really hard. And he gave his own uh, running as, as an example. A friend of him told him like, you've got to start running. Like your, his life was in a major rut. He was severely depressed and crazy debt. Everything was going wrong. And the guy's like, you've got to start running every day. You need, you need to have the endorphins going through you. So he's like, okay, fine. He gets up to run. He hates it. The next day, he hates it. The first 10 days, they were just hell. And then the next 10 days, they were bearable. It was just okay. Nothing great, but it wasn't hell. And then he said he couldn't believe it. Around day 21, he wakes up and the thought ran through his mind, I can't wait to start running. And he was like, I thought, I thought that. He's like, that's when you start getting the benefits of things, but you have to be willing to go through exactly what you were saying. It's like that really uncomfortable first 10 days. The challenge is that most of us experience that first uncomfortable day. And we think that we're gonna be going through discomfort forever. So we just get over that hurdle and we decide that we're gonna take on one new habit at a time. It doesn't take very long. If you think about taking one new habit at a time and let's say, okay, I'm gonna do that once a month. You add 12 new habits to your life in the course of a year, you have a totally different life. You just gotta suck it up, right? For 10 days at a time of just having like this one part of your life be a little bit crappy. But then, so many highs. Well, on that note, what are what are some things and, and maybe that you're seeing, we talked a little about some patterns, but you know, one of the things I when I was doing some research for this, I liked is, you know, where you're trying to dismantle the blocks to meaningful lives to help people. What are some things actionable they can do right away to maybe whether it's have a different thought about it or an action they can put into play. Uh, to start doing that for their lives? Any, anything, you know, to get them started on the right path? So there's two things I would say have the most impact, impact on mental health and, and joy, joyous living that I've seen so far. One is super simple. Eat a lot more plants. Just eat a lot more fruits and vegetables um, because they hydrate the brain and the body and they're incredibly healing and they're highly anti-inflammatory. Most Americans are walking around with a lot of inflammation in their blood vessels, a lot of inflammation in their bodies, and all that inflammation is also happening in the brain. So it makes your thinking not as clear, makes it harder to be happy, everything's kind of foggy, you get more anxiety and depression. Um, and plants work better at that than Prozac. That's what the data shows. So that's, that's an easy one. So the other one, I mean, it might be challenging, but it's like, somehow it feels tangible, so it's a little bit more controllable. The other thing is willing to go through the process of questioning, questioning thinking. So the, the, the number one thing that I try to teach my students is a statement I came up with years ago, which is whenever you find yourself um, tight, anxious, sad, depressed, like anything that just feels down or negative, ask yourself the question, what am I believing right now that's making me feel this way? And put pen to paper. And if you can't address those thoughts in that moment, then you can definitely address those thoughts later on that day. You know, you could sit for half an hour. I recommend people take a half an hour practice of journaling through the process of questioning their thinking. And I really like teaching the work of Brian Katie because it's really simple. 
Um, although the process of inquiry that I use in my coaching practice is a lot more complex. But what I like to teach people is the work of Byron Katie. So it's really simple. The first thing you do is let's say you have a thought, um, let's do Hannah doesn't like me because, well, we've already got that one, okay? So the first question is, is it true? And it's a yes or no question. It's a question to the gut. Just answer it quickly, yes or no. There's no correct answer. The second question is very similar to the first. Can you absolutely know that it's true, that Hannah doesn't like you? And to know something absolutely requires that you expand your view. And what I'll see people doing is literally this. They'll actually lean back a little bit and their eyes will start as if searching the known universe. One of the things that happens when we go into an adrenal response is that our vision becomes myopic. So it's like you're walking through the forest and you see a bear. So you'll get blood rushing to your extremities, your digestion shuts down, your immune system shuts down, your heart rate goes up, your, your uh, breathing gets shallow, and your vision, you lose your peripheral vision because you need to really focus on that bear. The problem is that your peripheral vision is where much of your intelligence, particularly your, your wisdom and your emotional intelligence live here. So in neuro-linguistic neuro programming, one of the things we do is we pay attention to people's eyes. And you'll notice that if you're trying to access a memory or access a sound or a song or a smell, your eyes will actually travel from side to side. So when you lose your peripheral vision, you've lost a lot of yourself and you're, you can get really narrow-minded. So to ask someone, do you absolutely know that's true? They automatically go like this. And they can answer it, yes or no. The third question is, how do you react when you believe that thought? And when we're talking about reactions, it's not like, oh, what do you do next? It's in that moment, what happens to you? What's going on physiologically? Does your mind start to race? What emotions come up? How do you treat yourself? How do you treat other people? And one of those awesome questions in there is whose business are you in? Are you with yourself or have you left yourself to go mucking around in someone else's business? Then the, the fourth question we ask is, how are you without the thought? For some people, this is easy. For some people, this question is challenging. So I like to make it a little more playful. So for example, with you, it's like, I would ask you to picture yourself during a time when you believe that thought. And you can close your eyes and picture yourself at that time and then imagine the thought walking out the door. And then, I don't know, going to the grocery store and buying ice cream and potato chips because that's what our base self likes to do, right? Off it goes. And there you are in that moment without the thought. How are you without it? For most people, they experience a sense of opening and ease Sometimes I get clients who talk about feeling incredibly high, joyous, but most people suddenly feel calm. We've programmed ourselves in our culture to associate that we think that what we're looking for is like a very giddy kind of joy. What we're actually looking for is presence. Presence doesn't have all that much emotion to it. It has no thought to it. It's just open. There's like an open curiosity. It's the thing you see in, in young babies where they're just looking at the world with eyes wide open and everything is wondrous. The state of curiosity is just a beautiful thing. 
Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's it's just so crazy when when it's almost like when you mention that because yeah, someone's like, oh man, I'm so happy at the and they just have these up and down, you know, peaks and valleys all the time. Instead of the folks that you find that are really happy are very level. It's very calm. I found at least, and like I said, it's always like how not how do I get better, but how do I learn more? How do I figure it out? How do I go through the dance? But it doesn't have to be this kind of you know you're going up, up, and and down, down, up and down so right. quick. Yeah. So, so, okay. So you ask these four questions and these four questions just enable you to, to hold the thought in front of you and say, ah, what does this thought do for me? Is it working for me? Is it not working for me? One of the, the questions I like asking people is if you think of the thought as a tool trying to get you somewhere, what's the goal? What are you trying to achieve? Right? If you have a hammer, you're trying to get a nail into the wall. If you try to use a toothpick, good luck right? So what most often people have is the experience of thinking that a thought is going to get them over here, and it actually gets them over here. So for example, um, people who think, I need to go on a diet. They think that thought is going to be like the, the whip that's going to push them towards dieting. But close your eyes, picture in front of you, huge buffet table with all of the junkiest foods you've ever loved Close your eyes and do it, right? Okay. All of your favorite junk foods. Just picture it. Gotcha. Got, okay. So I want you to notice what happens when you believe the thought you need to go on a diet. You need to go on a diet. You need to go on a diet. You should lose weight. Do you want to move closer to the table or away from it? I don't know. There was, I, I definitely kept seeing the same things. That's for sure. They didn't go away by any stretch. But do you want to get closer to the table or away from it? I wanted to get closer. Right. Yeah. But you would think that that thought would push you towards dieting, right? It sure. doesn't. I've asked this question to hundreds of people. It pushes every single one of them towards eating junk. So it's like, oh, we thought this was a hammer for dieting. It's actually a hammer for eating junk. It's like, okay, ineffective tool. So just to be aware of that, just to gain that awareness already shifts something. And then what we can do is we can say, okay, clearly this thought has come into my life because I have something to learn from it, which is why you run a podcast because you want to bring people into your life who can be teachers for you in addition to being teachers for your audience. And so the way you learn from a thought is it's, it's kind of a holographic experience. You say the opposite of the thought. So the opposite of, um, you know, Hannah doesn't like me would be Hannah does like me. And just like you came up with like a pile or I, I need to go on a diet. I don't need to go on a diet. And what our minds normally do, whatever it is we believe, our subconscious is a fantastic servant. It'll serve up evidence after evidence to prove your thought true. So now you have to serve up tons of evidence to prove this alternative thought true, because usually the alternative thoughts bring you a lot more joy. So on purpose, you bring up pieces of evidence. You know, so Hannah does like me. She decided to go on my podcast. She didn't hang up in the middle. She's still talking to me, right? For example, and I'm just making stuff up, right? Okay. You that are, be- so that's good. <laughs> I know, there we are. <laughs> um, she's answering my questions, like whatever it is. So so those would be the pieces of evidence. And then you could, you could say another opposite, which is rather than Hannah doesn't like me, I don't like me. 
and just to notice how, you know, I've been choosing to focus on things about me that don't work, but I don't have to continue doing that if I don't want to. And I can show all of these pieces of evidence of like, what are all these things that I've been doing to treat myself as if I'm somebody I don't like? And, and then what I'm doing is rather than owning my piece, owning that I've been the person who's been treating myself badly, it's so much easier to point over there at Hannah and blame her. So a really good example of that is um, I had a client who said that her boyfriend was manipulating her. And I said, oh, give me an example. She said, well, he said, let's see a movie. Let's rent a movie. And, and he asked me what movie I would like to see. And I said, when Harry met Sally, I don't know, I'm just making something up. I don't remember what it was. And he said, how about the princess bride? And I said, okay. And my response to her was, how did he manipulate you? And she's like, well, he didn't take my movie suggestion. And I said, but neither did you. And it was like the first time it occurred to her that what she was doing was she wasn't honoring herself. She wasn't honoring what she actually wanted. What she cared more about was getting his approval. So she traded her, the movie that she wanted and traded her own self-respect for approval. It was a deal. But she was actually in control of that deal much more than he was. Because she said, okay, so, you know, he just assumes when she says, okay, that she means, okay. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, and it, it, it's so simple. It seems like, right. It just seems it's simple, really, but really simple. But I think you, you are right. I think that the kind of the wraparound is that it's so much easier to point to others and blame others and, and sit in the easy versus actually having to, you know, kind of the, the accountability mirror and, you know, look at that and, and, and really be hard on yourself and say, how do I, how can I improve? How can I get better? How can I improve even, and it's tough too, I think for a lot of folks, the self-awareness, you know, that gets thrown around so much nowadays, but it's really sitting, like you mentioned, right? Question your thinking, kind of sitting in the thought and actually realizing what did all this stuff in my life, whether I felt I had control over or not, how is that effective who I am today? And how, but how can I change it? I have the choice, you know, I'm big on it's choices, right? That's all it is. You have the choice to, to make go one way or go the other. I, I use the, uh, the matrix, um, you know, the red pill or the blue pill, right? You have the choice to, to take which one you want. It's just a matter if you choose to go that route, you know, you may not always like how it, how it tastes. It might take a while, the uncomfortable nature, but unfortunately that's just how it is to, to get into a better spot, you know? And that was like, that guy was like, I'd rather have my steak. Right, exactly. Yeah, when he went, yeah, they, I can't remember the, the name of the character that went back. But yeah, like when Neo takes it, he takes the red pill, like that's, it, it changes, it changes everything for him, because he wanted to, he wanted to go down that path, you know, so it's, that's, a, I love that movie. But um, the, uh, but yeah, that's really interesting. Well, let me ask you this, then. I this will be fun. I'll be curious where you go with this. So I always like to kind of end these things on with, Going back, so I want you to go back to your teenage years. I want you to go back when you were a lot younger. And the fun part about it is you only have a post-it note size paper to write yeah. on. What advice are you giving to, let's say, your 18-year-old self 
to help them just a little bit further along on their journey. Um, Post-it note size, right? Post-it note size. What are you saying on there? It could be a, a quote, it could be a, a short sentence, something to spark spark them in a, in a new light. So there's two things. One is this idea that believing is seeing and that we, that we see what we believe and not the other way around. And the other is that um, I have no ability to control or know what other people are thinking. That's the biggest ego trip ever when we think we know what other people are thinking. It's like the biggest e ego trip ever. And um, yeah, my ego could have used a hit back then, right? So in that regard, to just have the humility to just engage with people as they were, not sit there trying to like go into their heads and make them change or make them do what I wanted them to do and um, somehow make myself okay in the process that I could have been okay without it. I would have been big, yeah. That's really good advice. This has been an absolute pleasure. I. Um... I really enjoyed the conversation and, and learning a lot from you. And, uh, and I hope a lot of others had some great takeaways as well. So uh, Hannah, thank you so much for uh, joining today. It's my pleasure. my pleasure. Where can everyone find you online? Where's the best way to connect with you? Awesome. Great question. So uh, hannamason.com, C-H-A-N-A-M-A-S-O-N.com. And actually, um, so my book, Hold That Thought, where I really take people through a step-by-step -step process of engaging in this process of inquiry, of questioning their thinking. Um, for some reason, I've just, I'm just good at taking complex ideas and making them really simple. So I do that a lot in my book. That's the feedback I get over and over again from readers. Um, so people can access a free download of that book on the website. And we actually have a course starting at the beginning of August connected to the book. So that's something that people can access there also. Wonderful. Well, awesome. This was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that great interview. And if this is your first time stopping by the podcast, grateful to have you. Thanks for coming by and hope to have you on the next one. If you are getting some value out of these podcasts, please head over to iTunes. Leave me a rating and review. I certainly would appreciate it. Um, actually, you might be listening to this on Apple Podcasts. You can just go to my show and scroll to the bottom, and you'll see where you can leave a rating and review. As always, I love to connect with folks online. If you want to head over to my website, brianondraco.com, drop me a line there, or on Instagram and Twitter, at brianondraco, or LinkedIn, just search my name, and we can connect further that way. I hope you all have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.